Hey, I'm Michael Dorinda. And I'm Jake Bennett. And welcome to episode number 141 of the North Meet South Web Podcast. Web Podcast. Welcome. Whiskey. What? Welcome. Whiskey. Uh, if you've never watched Hot Rod, folks, you should go watch it. It's a great one. Andy Samberg. It's great. Great stuff. Mm-hmm. Hot Rod. I might have to go watch it tonight. No, it's just a great movie. It's a great movie. It Top rings movies. a bell. It rings Top a movies. bell. Yep. It's uh, it's really funny. And so it's this guy and he is like stepdad or something. Doesn't think he's a man. And he always is teasing him about not being a real man. And so he, they like fight in the basement and stuff like his dad's, you know, his stepdad's trying to teach him how to be like a man and he can never beat him because his stepdad's just like, well, it's stronger than he is or whatever. And mm-hmm. his stepdad is sick and he's like, he's going <laughs> to, he's going to hold this benefit or something where he's going to try and jump all these buses on his moped to raise money for his dad's heart surgery. And he said, I'm going to get you better than I'm going to beat you to death. Because like, he wants to prove that he's a man to his stepdad. It's really funny. It's just it's just a stupid movie, but it's hilarious. That uh, that certainly yeah. sounds like the kind of thing Andy Samberger would be involved in. Yeah, yeah, it's it's great. It's really funny. So, yeah, there's uh, there's some other characters in it you'd recognize. People from SNL and um, mm-hmm. the guy who plays Lego Batman. I can't remember his name, but that guy. The guy who's mm-hmm. Job on Arrested yeah. Development. Yep. Um, yep. That Ray, Ray listens to know. a podcast with that guy, and I forget his name. I know. We all know who he is. I just can't. It's uh, dang it all. Ah, no, not gonna look it up. You look I know it you're up, all yelling. Know. I know you're all yelling at the uh, podcast. Like, guys, this is his name. I know the other guy's name is Jason Bateman, but for the life of me, uh, yeah, Will Arnett. Will Arnett. That's the one. Will yep. Arnett. Arnett. Will Arnett. Anyway, that that scene. Uh, there's a scene in Hot Rod where he says he's gonna go down this. He's so <laughs> the whole movie. He's training to do this jump. And they're doing all sorts of stupid stuff, like holding his breath underwater and going down this this huge hill on a luge board, like a skateboard, right? And he, so he's at the top of the hill and he says, my safe word will be whiskey. His friend's like, what? Whiskey. He said, whiskey. Why are you saying it that way? Why am I saying what, which way? It's great. <laughs> anyway. Great, uh, great cast. Andy Samberg, Isla Fisher, Ian McShane, Danny McBride, Bill Hader. Will on it, yeah. Ah, Bill yep. Hader, yep. yeah. Bill Hader, dude, he's so funny. Okay, so anyway, down to down to brass tacks, huh? We're not here. Brass, we're not playing. For, we're not playing for sheep stations. <laughs> Got a bit is of that, a. Is that is that how that goes? You've had a re. It, it is. We're not here to play for sheep stations. You got a bit of reinvigoration around your. Uh, State machines. I'm going to get another two years of state machines on this podcast, aren't dude, I, dude? You are. You are. So we should talk about this real quick. All right, here's here's the main thing I want to talk about with everybody, right? Because I've there there's and this was the huge dilemma I had when I was trying to get ready to do my talk. There are packages out there that do state machines, quote unquote state machines. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And every package does the same thing, which is that they set up the enforcement of the transitions. So they say if I'm in this state, I should only be able to transition to these two other states. That's what they do. Mm-hmm. And so basically it acts as a layer of validation, right? So you plan up front how you want to do it. And it basically enforces that you can only go through the flow in a certain order. Great. That's all good. That's fine. But the thing that most of them miss is the decoupling of when you transition from one state to another. All of them make you explicitly state what transition you should be going to next. And that is a big part of you're missing a huge part of the benefit, which is that instead of going event action, it's event 
state machine action and you delegate the out event to the state machine and the state machine takes care of what is supposed to happen next. That is the piece that mm-hmm. all of these, a lot of these are missing. And so I was mm-hmm. talking, I, I messaged, I put on Twitter the other day, you and I were kind of going back and forth on just some, I was, I was basically just spiking out what an API could look like for defining a fluent state machine inside of a class, right? And as always, I'm always amazed how much better things come out when you just bounce ideas off of other people. There's always so many things that I didn't think of that just having another set of eyes on it are like, oh, what did you think about this? Mm -hmm. Oh, that's a great idea. I should totally do that. That was so true in my talk. And it's even more true when I'm talking about these sort of things. Just another set of eyes, another set of suggestions, which is why open source is such a great thing. Mm -hmm. But but that's that's the deal that I that I see people miss is just that idea of delegating the events to the state machine and letting the state machine do the work. And so anyway, I had posted some of the code that I came up with or that we came up with kind of together on Twitter the other day, and somebody posted back this uh, symphony workflows with a smiley face, like uh, I guess Mm -hmm. you didn't know about this was kind of the the assumed tone that was being sent in. Yeah, it's like no no no. I'm fully aware of this. This just doesn't accomplish what I'm trying to accomplish. And neither do the other state machine packages that I've found. Mm-hmm. And so that's that's where I'm trying to fill this gap in. And so the place where I'm looking at for all this inspiration and really what started me on the path of state machines and state charts, which I'm going to come back to defining the difference between those in a minute here, but is xState. So xState is a JavaScript library that handles a full implementation of state charts completely, like the whole thing. And that's what event originally got me started on state machines. And the very first state machine implementation I ever used was with xState. And it does exactly what I'm talking about, which is you give it the event and the event handles taking you to the next transition or I'm sorry, handles transitioning to the next state and all that stuff. Does that make sense? The difference that I'm, that I'm trying to specify there? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Definitely. I think it's an important the, um, Yeah. The interesting thing, I mean, what you could always do, which seems to be a favorite uh, of our community is to just wrap up that workflow component and make it do your own thing. Yeah. Just wrap yeah. it up, Jake. Just wrap it. I know. I know. It's like, so it maybe, maybe I could, maybe I could, and then I could just delegate to that workflow thing and just handle doing the transitions through my little state chart thing. It's possible. Cause one of the other things I really want to do and, and the big benefit, man, I'm going to, this is why I have to do talks is because it takes me a while to organize my thoughts. I've got so many things I'm thinking about right now that I want to talk about. So, okay. What, what is that when you have code that sort of de- like, so um, uh, what was that? You know, like Chris Fidow does this sort of stuff where you have, you know, you write code and then it basically, it takes care of deploying a server for you, right? Yeah, infrastructure like sysop- is code. The other way around. So, yeah, sysops, you know, using yeah. using just YAML files or whatever, basically. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. Yep. What's yeah, the, like there's a word for that. that yeah. Kind of tooling. yeah it, there's a, infrastructure is code. Infrastructure is code. And then there's a specific AWS term that they... Terraforming, right? Terraform. Terraform. Mm-hmm. Terraform. Okay. And then the one other thing I was going to talk about. Hold on. Oh, that was the thing. Oh, yeah, that's what it was. Okay. Difference between state machines and state diagrams and state diagrams and state charts. Okay, so Michael, here are the three things. These are sort of the deals. What should we talk about first? Which one sounds the most interesting to you? Well, we've already started talking about state machines. So let's let's finish that, round that out. Tell us the difference okay. between state machines and state diagrams and state charts. Okay, so for me, a state, state machine is, so if we're talking about like, there's a couple of different ways you could go on this, but a finite state machine 
has a finite number of states, a finite number of transitions, and is typically deterministic, meaning that for each event that comes in, uh, you know, a state and an event together form a pair that will only ever transition to one other state. It's deterministic. It will only ever do that. So if I have, if I have a void state and I have a pay event, void and pay together point to the paid state always. It cannot ever point anywhere mm-hmm. else, right? Those two things together mm-hmm. deterministically say it points to this other state. So that's what I'm saying when I say state machines. And I think that is a pretty common definition of like a finite state machine. Um, and that's good. That's, that is what we talked about on stage. If you, if you recognize, or if you kind of wrap your head around that, you understand what a state machine is. Yeah. However, it's the, are, it's the, inca- it's the encapsulation. Yeah. Or, or rather the implementation. Sure. Yep. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. so um, state machines are good. State diagrams then for me would be a visual representation of a state machine, right? So you have the circles, you have the arrows, you have the labels. A state diagram is just a visual representation of a state machine. The other thing then is a state chart. So state charts basically it's it's it could be confusing because a state chart sounds like oh a chart i know is a visual thing state machine state chart it's a visual diagram no 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 state diagram is the visual representation state charts is a superset i guess you could say of state machines which aim to solve some of the limitations and problems that you have with state machines so it defines further more rules and abilities of state machines formally there's a spec for it so the w3c mm-hmm. came out with a state state charts spec a while ago and there was a guy that talked that, that did this back in the day he's the guy who first kind of wrote the the book on it and defined all this stuff and then that's where the spec came from right but, so this is so so the state chart is talking about specifically the notation used for like it's xml lovely it, yes Right. So the yeah, state chart uh, XML. So I think SCXML is kind of like what it's called. Mm-hmm. Right, so this is the spec. Yeah. But on the spec also, there are things defined like um, you can have enter actions and leave actions, or you can have conditions, a guard clause around a transition to say if it should or should not transition. You can have things like delayed transitions or you can have sub-states. So you can have parallel state machines or hierarchical state machines. All of those things are defined inside of this state charts spec. And that is something we did not have time to talk about on stage because we were just trying to give the basic premise of what a state machine was. Mm-hmm. So all of that stuff about state charts is completely left out. But X state is a, is a state chart compliant implementation of state charts, I guess, is the best best way I could say it. So X state right. te- okay. really strives to be SCXCM or XML compliant. So it, it says all the rules that apply to that are, are what we have in X state as a JavaScript library. So the great thing about this as well is, and I've, I've heard this complaint from people. So when you use this state machine pattern, as we did on the stages I presented it, the only place that you have that represents the full picture as a zoomed out view where you can see it is that state diagram that we drew up on stage, right? You have the circles, the arrows, the stuff, but that doesn't mm-hmm. necessarily live in your code. It could get outdated, right? 
uh, that that chart, that diagram that we made could get outdated. And so then your documentation around how the machine works could fall out of date with how your code actually is being implemented. So one way that you can solve that is to say, okay, well, I am going to make it so that my code can write out a chart. Or sorry, I keep saying chart. My code can write out or can create a diagram from itself, right? So it's like self-documenting, right? So you say, right. yeah. I'm going to set it all up. And then I say, um, you know, I use some artisan command or something to say, create chart for this state machine. And it will use reflection or whatever to kind of go through and, and pull out a diagram. So you could do that. And that's that's fine. And that, that's part of the thing. Uh, let me, uh, But basically what I want to do then is I want to create something that can be both that it can create the diagram for me, but that it could also be executable sort of like with the code as infrastructure, right? I want to define it mm-hmm. as I did in that class that I was showing you yesterday. And instead of having classes and, and methods and things like, or yeah, classes and methods, I want to just be able to fluently define it. And then that thing takes care of being its own documentation, right? So you look in yep. one place and you can see you can just look at that one spot and like, oh yeah, there's all the things that it's supposed to do. So X state mm-hmm. does that. X state already accomplishes that, but we don't have an equivalent for it in PHP is my problem, right? There is nothing mm-hmm. in PHP that does that necessarily. I've found one library called like X state PHP, which is written by another Laravel developer. And it's an incomplete implementation of, of state charts in PHP. But that's, a, that's yeah. essentially long-term what I'm aiming for is I want to have state chart compliant implementation of the state chart spec, I think, mm-hmm. is the idea. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's a lot of talking. What, so at, the, what, yeah. at, at the end of the day, so, so we've got this fluent interface to define yeah. the state mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. chart. Yeah. And so what, that's, that's then going to spit out this X state, I suppose, compliant JSON object go. that you can then use to then render... Perfect. Yeah, exactly. Right. So you could visualize. Yeah. So there's a couple of different ways you could do that. Right. So um, I think Symphony already has that idea where you can, or or Mermaid JS. I mean, there's a couple of different ways you could go with it, right? Mm -hmm. You could just render any sort of diagram that you wanted, but it would actually be really cool if you could take that and render out a X state JSON feed, because then Mm -hmm. you could just import it into stately.ai which essentially allows you yep. to click through and simulate that state machine yeah. inside of there. So like instead of having to reinvent that whole thing, I could just say, mm-hmm. okay, we'll take this, spit out a JSON payload that is compliant with how X state works and then just go paste it into stately and then you can simulate it and mess with it mm-hmm. all you want in there. Which is really cool. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting, interesting. I guess the other option yeah, would just be looking to do at something stately like as well. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> So be yes. cool. Do they do they offer some kind of API for Stately? No, they don't. Not that I'm aware of. Mm. Um, David, yeah, right. Because I, I was looking at that yesterday to see like, is there a way for me to basically send across a payload to it and mm-hmm. then have it just render? I don't think there is. But I could talk with David K. Piano. He's the guy who runs it, and he's the like the godfather of state charts. At least the godfather, mm-hmm. as far as I'm aware of. He's the dude who got me into state charts. And so that would be cool, actually, if they could support something like that. That would be really neat. Almost like a code pen or a PHP sandbox, you know? Yeah. Other, I mean, otherwise, what you're doing is you're just generating this stuff and saying, go and paste this into there or, yeah. or use, you know, if you could come up with something that 
you know, from that fluent interface, then define some JSON that you can then spit out into something that's mermaid compatible or, you know, the stately, this JSON compatibility, and then you can just do whatever you need to do with it. It'd be nice if you can kind of encapsulate the whole thing to just kind of give you the, 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 the rendered output. They do but, have, yeah. yeah, they do have an X state visualizer. Which is something mm-hmm. I think there's a package for it, like a node package yeah, for that. A so JavaScript, you could, yeah, JavaScript, yeah, so right, exactly. So you could do it yourself locally. You could actually mm-hmm. say, you know, render this out, and it could just pop up a local, a little window, a little web page for you that would allow you to be able to click through it. It's a little bit less you could, um, awesome yeah. than Stately because you build can't a, build an application in uh, native PHP. There you go. Oh, there you go. Self-contained Laravel app, and mm-hmm. then you can bundle in, I suppose, your yeah, X state in there and then have it render out. That's an interesting um, idea. Something. Yeah. You know, jam a, <laughs> jam a headless Chrome in there so that you can then generate <laughs> the thing and spit out a PNG. Right. What What else can we jam into this native PHP container? <laughs> yeah. Well, the thing, you know, I think the thing that you really get as a huge benefit yeah. from using something like stately.ai or that X state visualizer is the ability to simulate the state machine itself. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. you can actually just... It just gives it to you and then you can click through and simulate the events that would happen and kind of go through and figure out, oh, that's an edge case here. So like I missed mm-hmm. something at this particular point. What if I actually get a webhook when I'm not expecting a webhook? What should I do? You know, that sort of thing. Yeah. Yep. So, so yeah, that's the idea. And again, it's still like early. Like literally all I'm doing is writing how I would expect it to look when I was using it in code. And so... Oh, a good way to do that I've found is to so I just hop into PHP Storm because it gives me I still get um I still get to use GitHub Copilot which is great and I still get all the helpful auto completions that it wants to do because it knows I'm writing PHP but at the very top I say I think it's like slash star no inspection all and it just doesn't bother me or annoy me with oh you don't actually have this method on that that class it's like i know i don't have that method right. on that class i don't care i'm just trying to write out what i would want it to look like so i'm sort of defining what's the shape of it going mm-hmm. to be and then once i have what i'm happy with with the shape and can show that to a couple people right there's really minimal investment at that point it's just i'm basically sketching yeah and then once you get that then you can say okay now let me start implementing these classes based on how i've written the api to look uh, so it's just pseudocode. But then you don't have all these squigglies all over the place to distract you about, ah, oh, that's actually not compatible with your, you know, your actual code. It's like, I'm aware. I know that. Just mm-hmm. stop telling me that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's so, interesting. It'll be interesting to see how it kind of plays out and and where you get with it. Because I think the the code, like kind of the fluent API that, that we came up with is is pretty good. And just like, you know, removing some things that are, you know, still having them under the hood that you can like new upper class, but having that fluent API. And I do this a lot with with my day job is just like write some code that looks like what I want to do and that kind of just reads as a as an English sentence where, you know, we I did this kind of thing a while ago. I think we talked about my 3 a.m. or 4 a.m. fever dream where I woke up and I'm like, what if we had a pending object called submit application right and we'd have like submit colon colon four dollar application arrow to you know lender send or something like that Mm -hmm. i don't Mm -hmm. remember the exact thing was but like a lot of this stuff especially when when using the 
pending object paradigm allows you to kind of write these things out in such a way that it's it's readable to anyone kind of looking at it and it's like fairly simple to implement this object that just basically every method returns this until you get to that like terminable method whether it's a send or a you know handle or go or whatever you know whatever it looks like in the context of of what you're building and then kind of working backwards from there and that, and that kind of goes back to you know adam and adam wathen and and jeffrey way's kind of programming by wishful thinking as well mm. where it's like is that what if this is the code that i wanted to interact with how do yeah. i now make it function kind of thing yeah and is that the actual name for that pattern is the pending object pattern or something or did you just make uh, that up or is that yeah it's just no, what I you've think, decided I mean, to call that's, it that's how i've seen it termed i don't know if that's like the you know the official astronaut term for it yeah so can you like clarify that, that for us a little bit because i understand what you're saying because we've i just did it yesterday after you suggested it but yeah. i probably wouldn't have thought of that on my own so can you define a little bit more clearly what you mean by the pending object pattern and when you say double colon are you saying you're using a facade or are you actually using a static method and how does that mm-hmm. work like using static constructors behind the scenes like what are you doing so could you kind of just yeah. maybe dump, jump into a little bit explain what you mean by that mm-hmm. now i don't know specifically where the terminology came from i know that probably the the most clear memory to me of that kind of pending object pattern was from when freak put out some mail coach videos a while ago three 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 years ago now around you know how they refactor a whole bunch of code to then use these pending objects and essentially what you end up with is a class which has a constructor that you wouldn't typically reference necessarily you would have some kind of name constructor. Like this is always your starting point. You need to have this thing in order to build up this object. And then you essentially just give it a whole bunch of named methods. So the context or the the kind of example that was in that video from, from Freik was where you would start with, you know, new subscriber and then you would pass it like a bunch of parameters you know dollar email dollar attributes then some stuff that's like this could be null and this could be true or false and this could be something else and this could be something else right so you end up with this class constructor that has five six seven different parameters to it and you know if it's only one or two it's okay when you start talking about you know three four five six arguments to a to a constructor, it gets a bit unwieldy, especially when you're wanting to do things like skip things. You know, I don't need to send this default null, but I want to send false over here where the default is true and things like that. And sort of PHP's named arguments makes it a bit clearer now that we have that in sort of PHP 8. But if you take that another step further, you kind of distill each of these individual components into their own methods. So you would start with, the, the same subscriber object and you'd create like a public static function called create with email. And that would take a string of an email as its one and only argument. And essentially what it does is will return a new static, like return new static dollar email, whatever you pass in there. And it returns that object from the constructor. And then you would have all these other named methods. You'd have with app, with attributes, um, skip confirmation and all these other kind of things. And all you're doing in each of these methods typically is assigning the value that's passed into the method to some property on that object. And so you can manipulate different states of it and it allows you to kind of compose the state of that object 
until ultimately you call whatever that terminable method is. In this context, it's subscribe to list and you pass it a list and it goes and takes all of that information that you've already populated into the object with each of those methods as needed and then, you know, go and create some action. So in this case, it would create a database record. It might send a confirmation email, all of that kind of stuff. So it allows you to kind of build up the world in the context of that object piece by piece. And it may be that you wrap all of this kind of stuff in conditionals. Like you'd go, you know, if we were past this this value, then we would go and call on that pending object that method. So that's the, that's the context that I've, that I've seen it in previously. I know that within the context of Laravel, the HTTP facade is one of these things. If you call like HTTP colon colon get, that get method will actually return a new pending request. I think it is the name of the object. So it will return a new pending request. And then it allows you to do other things like call as JSON with headers, with query, with whatever. And then eventually you have like send on the end of it. And then that's what's responsible for then taking all of that stuff that you've kind of built up that object with different arguments and inputs and parameters and whatever else sends the HTTP request, which, you know, bubbles down or bubbles up to guzzle. And that returns an object, which is then ultimately returned to you. But until then, you know, you can assign HTTP colon colon get to, you know, dollar request or dollar HTTP or whatever, and do some other stuff as you go through your execution flow to like, if, I've been passed in some arguments, then, you know, we also need to say with body or with or with JSON or maybe we want to send this as XML instead of JSON. So we would call like as XML instead of the default as JSON and things like that. So it gives you this flexible, fluent kind of environment in which to build up the state of that object conditionally, incrementally, however you, you need to before, you know, eventually committing it to whatever that needs to do. Yeah. inserting a database record, sending an email, whatever. So if we were to sort of generalize it, you know, it would sort of be instead of newing up a object with the constructor, you have, a, you could almost say you have like initializable methods. Mm-hmm. So like yep. you have yeah. methods that particularly have to be done first so they can return that pending object of whatever it is, right? So yep. get, post, patch, whatever those mm-hmm. would be, mm-hmm. right? That returns yep. the, that that sort of handles constructing the original pending object, which then gets returned. And then in the middle between the initialized and or the initializable method and the terminable method, you have options that you can set in between, right? So as mm-hmm. JSON, as XML with headers, blah, 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 blah. These other options that may or may not have default values that you're overriding, right? So some fancy setters, mm-hmm. essentially, right? Essentially, And yeah. then your terminable method basically says, I've got all the information now, go ahead and execute whatever I'm supposed to do, right? Mm-hmm. So yep. I think it's worth maybe talking about static constructors for a second. And then I also am interested in talking about some of the trade-offs here because like with with... With using a constructor, you know that by the time you call that object, is, once the constructor has is, is been done, you should have an object that's ready to be, it's fully functional, right? And mm-hmm. with this, maybe you do, maybe you don't. I suppose you just, it would just depend on how you constructed it. Because maybe you, you can just call get and then just call send. Right? That works. Like maybe by the time you call yeah. that initializable method, once that's done, you could just call your terminable method and it's, and it's all set. You don't need to set any of those values, any of those those. Uh, uh, options because they're all yep. they have defaults maybe right correct okay so static constructors first so mm-hmm. 
when you say a static constructor or a named constructor, basically what you're saying there is you just have a static public function that accepts something. And then what it does is it news up the object itself, passing in some values that you just passed into that static method, right? And mm-hmm. sometimes yeah. even you'll make the constructor private depending on how you want to do it, right? So maybe you have a... Um, I've seen this where you'll have maybe a, a way that you can accept an array or you could accept JSON or you could or you could construct something from a model in your database, right? And so you mm-hmm. would have something like, um, I'm just trying to make up something here. It's like, I don't know, invoice, right? Yeah. So you could do invoice colon colon from JSON and you'd pass in a JSON mm-hmm. payload or invoice colon colon from array and then you'd pass in an array or mm-hmm. invoice colon colon from transaction or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. And each one of those knows how to construct the object in a different way based on what values you're putting in, right? And in that case, you could just say, I'm not going to allow you to ever call the constructor publicly, right? It's always, it's going to be private. Mm-hmm. And if you want to construct this object, you yep. must use one of these static constructors to do so, right? So it basically protects you from screwing something up or, or it forces you to use one of these prescribed methods with a expected input in order to get that object, right? So that's sort of a named mm-hmm. constructor, mm-hmm. which is, I think, what you're talking about. Yeah. I mean, here's another scenario that I was just working on before we started this call where we have to generate these documents. So the documents get generated for a privacy disclosure. So we need to generate for a loan application a privacy disclosure that we say, you know, we are acting as a as an agent of a lender and we will send, you know, your name, your email address, your phone number to this person in order to facilitate finance for you. And so we have the notion of of this document which is for an application, but it could also be for us to kind of handle that for you or it could be the broker sending it directly so on the constructor we have like on this document there's a constructor it says you know the broker the application the applicant whatever and so if we're doing it for us as a person assisting with the application we would have you know document colon colon for a sister so there's a static method called for a sister and it will resolve some default set of values mm-hmm. from yeah, configuration right. And so we would just call like, you know, new static broker colon um, broker from a sister. And that would like take that object and throw it at it. And then it knows, okay, I need to get this from here, this from there, this from whatever. Yeah, all and your then config values maybe if we they're would, just set, right? Since you're the assistant yeah. in that case or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. But if we're doing it for a broker, for example, like we would pass it a a record from the database that's like, this is the broker and it would then yeah. go, okay, I need to go and get the name and the email and whatever from there. It's really useful. Uh, you mentioned like from a model, you know, where our, our the lenders that we deal with, sometimes they call it a person. Sometimes they call it an applicant. Sometimes they have a primary applicant and a secondary applicant. Sometimes they have, you know, borrower, things like that. They all use different sure, yeah. terminology. But the commonality from our point of view is that everything, all of those different entities are a person in our database, right? So we have a person model. So each of those six different DTOs that we build have like a from person static method on there. And so, you know, they might have primary applicant name. And so we know that we need to go, right, primary applicant from person, right? And it would take person first underscore name dot you know, concatenate the thing together with person, second name or last name, right? Another one accepts 
you know, first name, last name. So we would take that. And so the, the, the constructor itself is whatever that lender has, you know, first name, last name, um, name, applicant name, borrower name, whatever. And then from person is always responsible for taking that model and mapping it back on there. So these are what, you know, we kind of start using these static constructors where you could have two or three or 10 or whatever different sources of information, Yeah, you know, different ways to build up that object. But you don't want to have to do that in your controllers, for example. Oh, right. You don't want your controller, yeah. you don't like want your controller to be responsible it. to do the map. And otherwise, you know, then you've got all these different things in different places. So you, you kind of flip that um, control back to the, the DTO and you say, okay, this DTO needs to always look like this, but it can be resolved from here or from there or from whatever. And so this is where you kind of use those named constructors to kind of make it clear that, you know, irrespective of what the underlying object is, they might implement an interface that says like from person, person, dollar person returns, you know, static. And then that is then responsible for then handling the mapping onto that object. So you could be have any of six different things, but they're all being resolved from a from a model in the database. So I think I went, I went no, wide there nope, <laughs> into, into a couple of different things. But but essentially, the the static constructor is like giving you an interface to the constructor on that object, whether it's public or private, doesn't really matter. You know, as you say, you might make it private because you never want anyone to instantiate it directly, which right. may be more difficult in a testing scenario. Like if you're sure. wanting to test, yeah, not, that's true. not necessarily the construction of the object, but how you know how it how it renders to an array, for example, or serializes sure. to an array yeah. or to JSON. Like you might want to just say like first name, last name, whatever, directly on that. But to be able to say, you know, you are responsible for determining how you you come into being for a for a person. And that way the the outside, the controller, the the job, the action, whatever, doesn't have to have like all of this spaghetti in there to do conditional, you know, for this object, like we need to pass it first name, last name. And for this object, you know, if you want to do it to this lender, then we have to send like name. You would just figure out which which object you want to do, whether it's an applicant or a primary applicant or a borrower or whatever. And all of them have a from person method on it and you just give it the model and they're responsible for then mapping that person onto themselves. And then they just return you an object and you can do whatever you need to do with it. So I think that's a perfect use case for the static constructors. Yeah, yeah I think that's like that's a yeah. really good example. I mean, that's the one that's freshest in my head because it's one that I do quite often. Um, and when we're kind of mapping to 30, 40, 50, you know, however many different lenders... They've all got their own quirks and, and structures and things like that. But our data structure is always the same. So this is, you know, if you're ever sitting in that middle layer and you have to kind of figure out how am I going to map our one database model to all of these different things, this is one approach that you could consider where you just like, just give it the model. And we have these kind of things all over, like for different for different versions of these DTOs, you know, from from person, from application, from loan, from, you know, and we use them extensively and we've, you know, we even go the other way as well where we're mapping enums in our database to enums that the lender has. And so that we've got like an enum object for, um, let's say what's something we do marital status, right? So we have okay, in our sure. system an enum called marital status and we have for our purposes, single married, de facto divorced, right? Those are the four, but What's a lender might, 
de facto is like we have this notion in in Australia where if you've been living with someone for six months, I think it is, they basically have the same protections under law as, as though they were married. Gotcha. Yeah. So, you know, we have these four different stat- states, but you might find that a lender has de facto as D hyphen facto, ah. or they might have it as lowercase d, lowercase e, uppercase f, acto, or they might have capital D, lowercase e, capital F, facto. And so what we then do is we have on these, like we have a, a trait, uh, we have an interface, which basically defines that you need to have like a map method. And the map just returns an array of like, given the values from our system, right? This is which how are they constant map to, because you have an enum. Which yep. are constant, right? So we have an enum. It's always single, married, de facto, divorced, right? Yeah. And so we would map left to right. You know, here's our value. Here's the lender value. So single goes sense. to single. Married goes to yep. married. De facto goes to like however they've said it's de facto. And that way, you know, wherever we need to use these enums, we just call like, Lender, the, map, the lender, whatever, marital yeah. status. Yep, from out from the enum, and then and then the nice thing about that too is it's yeah, yeah, it's, it's typed we, as well. We, so. we just throw our value in there, and so it's it's typed, it's consistent. Every yep. single lender has like a, a from enum. It's not actually called from enum, but you get the gist. And then it will always handle that mapping. And then we do some like fallback stuff. So it's just an array, right? We don't use a match statement. We use an array, and we do like return array. Us to lender, us to lender, us to lender, question mark, question mark, uh, uh, sorry, square bracket, you know, dollar value, question mark, question mark, default, right? So if there is no mapping between what we've sent and what the, the lender sent, then we want to send like other, or we always want to send single or whatever else, sure, you know, whatever right. the case may yeah. be. Um, so that, you know, we always return an enum from it and, it, and we know that it's like going to be valid in the context of that lender. So rather than doing like, you know, all these conditionals in places, we kind of let the the DTOs in that example map themselves using a from enum. So, you know, people talk about, you know, static methods are bad. I think that depends as, as all things, you know, it depends. But for these kind of mapping, these kind of static constructors, like they exist for a reason. If you've ever... Yeah. Um, looked at, I think Ross Tuck, we've probably talked about previously, like the exceptions, having named exceptions sure, where you would yep. have your own custom classes. And I think Frank Deong has has done this as well. He has like crazy long names that are just static methods on custom exception objects that ex- extend from exceptions. So one I was working on earlier was like document generation failed, extends from runtime exception, and it has a public static method on there called like no partner. So in the code, you go abort unless or throw if. Throw you know, if, there you go, yep. Throw, yeah, throw if is null dollar partner, comma, and then you would go like document generation failed, colon, colon, no partner, and pass in whatever you want. And yeah. then you get the added benefit of like a readable exception. Yep. But what that what that kind of message is, isn't the responsibility of the controller. Yes. The controller just goes, yeah, throw this thing, and then you can go in there and then you can even independently test that and make sure that like you can see all of the different possible failure scenarios and what the messages are. And then, you know, we've got three or four or five different document types that could all fail generation, but they could all fail because there's no partner. Well, we don't need to, you know, do throw new exception and do this, you know, hard-coded string in one place. We just say like throw that thing, pass it the application. It's responsible for formatting it. 
rendering it if you want, logging an error, whatever. Yep. And, you know, it's no more all magic in one strings. Place. So there's, yeah, no more magic strings right. around trying to stay consistent on what it, what it should be if there's no partner or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. And the sort of that document error is sort of namespaces that exception then too. It's like if you want to catch it, you can catch that one type of exception, but the exception message yep. is going to be different based on which static constructor you're using. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, like rather than trying to catch an exception or a throwable, which could be any number of different things, you know, you now have the ability to catch specifically the document generation failed exception and say, okay, we need to log this but then we can just keep going. Like, don't worry that 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 didn't happen. Log it. You know, if we need to come back to it later, we can. But then you might have some other throwable as like a, a second catch or a finally or whatever else in that code execution that that checks all those other things as well. So, yeah, I think three three different examples there then of um, different times we might use a static yeah. constructor for They're various so different powerful. things. But, yeah, they're so powerful. And once I started using those, I you find, you know, it's one of those things where you kind of go overkill on them for a bit and then you pull back mm-hmm. and then you kind of find a balance. Uh, but they are really helpful and I do find that I use them in a number of situations. And not just because I it like to double pull. It makes it as well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it, like it makes it simpler in many contexts to be able to say, you know, what is this doing? Rather than having to look at, you know, either quote, I'm going to say this in quotes, polluting your... Um, controlling code with named arguments, you know, all of this extra stuff just to kind of explain what a variable is, you know, maybe, or or using like really descriptive variable names to kind of make it clear. Yeah. Well, now you don't kind of have to do that. That's all all inferred from the method names themselves, you know, document for person, um, submit to lender, uh, state of, you know, transition to whatever, like this kind of stuff that we talked about with with the context of the state machines um it just makes for you know the combination of all of these things in in those scenarios makes for readable code makes for like really quite testable code as well you can test those individual things you know being able to test those things in isolation like if i call you know the pending request object and then you can test like passing a single value and making sure that it's changed the right thing in the in in that thing without having to construct the object and pass like six arguments and like the fifth one you need to change to a different value. You know, you can just accept the defaults of the, of the constructed object and then change that one thing that you need to change. Yep. Love it. It's good stuff, man. It's good stuff. Hey, I think we're about at the end of our time here. Uh, we've so. been going for about 45 minutes. So we're going to wrap this one up. This was episode 141. Thanks so much for hanging out with us. Five stars on your podcast of choice would be amazing. Show notes for this one at northmeetsouthaudio slash 141. Hit us up on Twitter at Michael Dorena, at Jacob Bennett, or at North South Audio. For all you faithful listeners who happen to tune in every, tune in every week, thanks so much for uh, listening, and we appreciate you. And uh, hope that you have a wonderful rest of your week. Thanks, everybody. See ya. Bye.